So thank you all for having me. Um, I'll first say, uh, instead of wobbling up here, uh, Sam Shire and Jeremiah, I thought of this great idea. I could ride up on the lift, and it would be much more dramatic, and then I would have hobbled over here. But instead, here I am. And I might be leaning a lot, but it's OK. I'm also uh, going to warn you that you don't know what you're getting yourself into. Uh, last time I preached actually was to a church in Old Fort. Um, and so I was told to come and uh, preach to the church. And so that's what I thought I was doing. And when I got there, I looked at the bulletin. And there was like a call to worship, confession, assurance. And I went and I said, uh, where's the call to worship, confession, assurance? They're like, oh, no, whatever you want. And then I proceeded to uh, make up a call to worship, a confession, and assurance on the spot. I was like, uh, we're called to worship. And then I go, next. And I'm like, ah, we confess. Uh, and we're assured. And I was killing it. Um, I did the sermon, and it all worked out great until I came up to this point in the bulletin that just said anthem. Um, just in bold underline, it said anthem. And so at this point, I, I kind of I looked down. I was like, come on, think. Anthem, 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 anthem. Look back up, uh, didn't really have anything, so I said, uh, now we will do anthem. And then, <laughs> and then I paused, uh, what felt like, like three minutes, it was probably like 10 seconds. And I looked down, I looked back up, I was like, come on, something. And I said, uh, moving on. <laughs> and, then, and then I moved on, and then I didn't say anything about it. And at this point, I looked up, and there were three people who were blatantly very angry at me. There were only nine people who showed up that day, three of which were my, my brother, my wife, and Eli Hall, who for some reason comes to everything I preach on just to laugh at me. Um, I looked up. Three people were blatantly angry at me. Three people were fast asleep. And then the other three people were just dying laughing at me, my brother, my wife, and Eli. So 33% of the people were angry, 33% asleep, 33% laughing. So I hope I have better odds this time but I'm not sure. <laughs> anyway, so we're uh, right now we're in this uh, series called The Search for the Better King. Um, we've been going through this the past couple weeks. It takes place in 1 Samuel, and it's the story of how the people of Israel have time and time again just been rejecting God. God wants to have this special relationship with the people of Israel. He says, hey, I want to be your king and your ruler, um, and I want you to be different than the other people. Uh, but they're like, no, we, we try to be in the weirdos. We want to be normal. Um, please just give us a human king. Um, and again and again and again, they've rejected God. So last week, Anthony used the illustration that it was as if Israel were these people who uh, God had given them the bag of sugar that they wanted. When you, give you, when you give a kid a bag of sugar, they're going to keep eating it, even though you know it's not good for them, but they have no idea. So as if God just gave them the bag of sugar, he said, fine, have your king, that's punishment enough. And so this week, uh, it's 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10, this is the week where God actually gives them the bag of sugar and says, fine, here's your king. Um, so I thought about reading all of chapter 9 and all of that chapter 10, and then I would have only had to preach for like two minutes, but I figured uh, I'll spare you off from that. So I'll kind of summarize it. So what happens is essentially uh, there's this guy named Saul. Um, it talks about how he's a, let's see, he was a handsome young man. There's not a man among the people more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So it goes on, it repeats it like multiple times throughout Samuel, how amazing Saul was based off his appearance. Anyways, his, his dad loses his donkeys. Uh, somehow it doesn't say, but his dad loses his donkeys. So he says, Saul, go take a servant and find the donkeys. So they're looking around. They're trying to find the donkeys. They can't find them anywhere. So then they're like, ah, let's just go home. We're not going to find them. And then his servant's like, no, there's this religious man, um, which is Samuel. He says, let's go ask him, and he'll be able to tell us where we can find the donkeys. 
So they go to Samuel. Meanwhile, um, God had just spoken to Samuel saying, somebody's going to come to you tomorrow asking about donkeys. That's who you're going to make king. And so we're going to read that, and it should be up there, um, 1 Samuel 9, 15 through 17. All right, so 1 Samuel 9, 15 through 17. Uh, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Actually, I'm going to keep on reading. It says, Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me. And in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for the donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? So Saul and his servant, they come up to Samuel expecting to ask him where the donkeys are. And instead, Samuel says, don't worry about that. Uh, There's something much better. And essentially saying, I'm going to make you king. Um, So then Saul is obviously taken back by that. He's looking for his donkeys and somebody says, you're going to be king. He's like, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. This is like the smallest tribe. I'm from the Matrite clan. It's like the smallest clan. Um, I'm not supposed to be king. So he's confused. Anyways, Samuel says, don't worry about it. He spends the night in the high place, and he eats dinner with all these important people. The next day, uh, Samuel sends him off, and he says, I know you don't believe, this is a paraphrase, he's like, I know you don't believe that you're going to be king, but here's like three signs for you. Two people are going to come up to you, and then three other people are going to be going up with this donkey, and then you're going to see some more people coming down from the high place. Extreme paraphrase, but it's just a lot to explain. (laughs) So uh, uh, all of that happens on his way home. All of those things come true. And so at this point, he's thinking, I guess I I am going to be king. He gets home. His uh, uncle's like, so did you find the donkeys? He's like, "Uh, yeah, I got the donkeys. It's all good. And then his uncle says, "Uh, did did Samuel say anything else? He's like, nope, definitely didn't say anything else. And then then it just kind of takes a pause in the story. It leaves us there. A decent amount of time goes by, and then um, Samuel calls all of Israel together and is like, okay, you guys have asked for a king, so we're going to put someone over you. Um, So I'm going to read that right here after Samuel calls everyone together and is the actual anointing of the king. Um, That's uh, Samuel 10. Yep, there we go, 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God, who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. So Samuel calls everyone together, says, hey, I'm going to set you a king. But first he tells them, by the way, you're rejecting God. This is a terrible decision, but here's your king. Everyone just cheers, and they're happy with it, and they continue on. And then they cast lots to see who's going to be king, and it ends up on Saul, is how the story kind of finishes. They're looking around for Saul, and he's hiding among the baggage. They're like, go grab him. 
So they grab him, and they're like, look at this guy. He's, he's super tall and handsome. He's going to be your king. And everyone says, long live the king. And then it ends, pretty much, with that. He goes home, um, back to his donkeys. Um, before I kind of get any further of this and explain what just happened, um, I'm just going to pray real quick. Uh, dear God, thank you just for this opportunity that we have to come to worship, uh, you knowing what a blessing that is. Um, thank you for providing us in more ways than we deserve. Um, we pray that this message would dwell in our hearts, that we wouldn't leave here unchanged, but instead we would uh, look to you deeper and deeper, and that these words would take effect in our lives, that we would be, walk closer to you. Just let me pray. Amen. So essentially what you have here is this guy saw that he tends donkeys, and what he really likes to do is tend donkeys. He doesn't really want to do anything else. And under seemingly normal circumstances, looking for his donkeys, he becomes the king, essentially. Saul had no idea what was going on in these normal circumstances, but God was working all along on a much vaster scale. When, when Saul reaches Samuel, he's simply just looking for his donkeys, and Samuel is telling him, like, no, don't worry about the donkeys, you're going to be king. At this point, Saul's just like, honestly, just tell me where the donkeys are. I don't, I don't want this king thing. And then he goes back home, and his mind's so fixated on the donkeys, his uncle's like, uh, what did Samuel say? And he said, just the donkeys. Say anything else? Definitely nothing about being a king, just the donkeys. That's, that's all that Samuel, Saul cares about at this point. Then, when he's appointed as king, they say, your king is going to be Saul. Everybody's looking around, and they can't find Saul anywhere. And then they find him, like, way of somebody spots him. He's like, he's hiding in the baggage. So they run, and they grab Saul and said, look, you're going to be king, okay? Just get over it. And so then he's made king, and he goes back home, um, and that's kind of where it ends. What we have is this guy that God is calling Saul to something much deeper, but Saul keeps saying, I'd rather tend the donkeys. He's saying, I'd rather tend the donkeys than tend your people, Israel. Saul's rejecting what God is calling him to. Saul's comfortable tending donkeys, so naturally he wants to keep tending donkeys. Being king of Israel seems really stressful. It hasn't really worked out for the past hundred of people that have gone before him, so he doesn't really want to do that. Tending donkeys are easy. Um, there's really hardly a more pathetic picture in the entire Old Testament. They're like, look, look at your king, this tall, handsome man. Saul is going to be king at the moment when he's supposed to save them from the impending doom of the Philistines, and they're anointing him. Nobody can find him because he's hiding among the baggage, and they have to go run and grab him. Saul doesn't have high ambition. He just enjoys living comfortably. And uh, later on, he's eventually in the book of Samuel, rebuked by Samuel. And he says, Did I greedily run and rush after the kingdom and sovereign power? I wished to lead the undisturbed and peaceful life of ordinary men, but thou dragged me to this post of honor. He wanted the comfortable life. He would rather tend the donkeys. Saul was called to something uh, way deeper than he wanted to live for. He was to be used as a vessel to shepherd in the people of Israel. God is calling him to tend his kingdom, but instead he's rejecting that offer for what he thinks he would rather desire for himself. So we, we chuckle at this idea of Saul choosing to tend donkeys over uh, being a king, but we do the same thing every day. We tell God daily, you know, I'd rather tend the donkeys than do what you have for me. We all have donkeys. Um, in our lives. <laughs> uh, we, all, we all have things that we use for a crutch um, for not focusing on the Lord as we should. We oftentimes find ourselves focusing on things of far less importance than what God would have for us. In terms of focusing on things of far less importance, uh, the world's largest ball of twine um, is located in Darwin, Minnesota. And so that's the world's largest like 
ball of twine, like a guy, like he, he wrapped the ball with twine. But he did this for four hours a day for 39 years till the day he died. It weighed 17,400 pounds. I calculated the amount of hours he spent, and it was 56,940 pounds that he, that he made, uh, hours, 56,940 hours balling this twi- ball of twine till the day he died. When he died, the, the town picked it up and they moved it and made a park and now they have uh, the Twine Ball Days Festival, the second Saturday in August every year to commemorate his work. Um, kind of cool, but that's, that's a waste of time. Um, <laughs> along with that guy is the guy that broke the world record for breaking the most toilet seats over his head in 60 seconds. Uh, I read an article um, where he was talking about the science of it. He would, like, uh, he would practice breaking things over his head to get a calcium deposit there. And then he would just spend hours upon hours just like building a calcium deposit so he could snap them. He would research the science of toilet seats to figure out the best breaking point. And then he completed his goal, broke 46 toilet seats over his head in a minute. Um, that was a waste of time. And then also with that guy is the man that spent the last two years of his life um, chopping a full-size airplane into a million pieces and then eating it. And uh, he now holds the world record for eating the largest airplane in his entirety. Uh, those, those were the last two years of his life. Um, but all of these guys uh, wasted their time uh, <laughs> gigantically. <laughs> I'm sure there's parts of these situations that maybe were life-giving or um, maybe brought joy to others. However, uh, I feel like I'm on safe ground to say that it was probably a waste of time. And so it's comical, but how often do we just spend our lives wrapping twine around a twine ball or eating airplanes for two years? Uh, We're called to live differently than that. Um, We're called to step outside of our comfort zones. Um, God was calling Saul to something far deeper uh, than Saul was willing to do and what Saul wanted to do with his life. Uh, God's calling us in the same exact way. God wants so much more for ourselves than we often even desire for ourselves. So, so what are those twine balls in your life or the times when you say, you know, I'd rather tend the donkeys than do what you have for me? So one of my favorite books is this book called Christianity Rediscovered, and it tells the story of this uh, missionary named Francis Donovan who went to the Maasai tribe in Kenya. And so uh, the Maasai tribe is often like referred, people kind of think it as the odd one. They've got a lot of these weird rituals and stuff. Um, these aren't my words, but it's general opinion that um, they're kind of, they're just different, and they're a really difficult culture to uh, witness to. Uh, they really value the lion um, in their culture as a, because the lion is the pursuer, and it's and like the king of the prairie uh, where they live. Um, they revere it, and they have many rituals uh, surrounding it. And the, the missionary actually helped bring the village to faith. And upon the village coming to faith, the village chief states, we have not searched for him, he has searched for us. He has searched us out and found us. All the time we think we are the lion. In the end, the lion is God. People realize they're not in control of their own lives. That they are not the lion. And after all, someone else has been pursuing them all along. And that someone else is God. God is the lion and ruler. We, we tend to think that what we're doing is so important and what we're fixated on is, is such a big deal. But God is working on a much grander scale. The author continues on to write, um, kind of just a paraphrase, you work on your own little corner of the world and consider your work so important, while all along someone else has been working on a much vaster scale. You find out once again in the last analysis, you are not the lion after all, the lion is God. 
you find out once again someone's been working on a much vaster scale. You are not the lion, but the lion is God. We spend our days thinking that we are the lion and that we can pursue our hopes and our goals and that we are, we are king of our lives. But all along, God's been working on a far greater scale. God is the ultimate pursuer. So the people of Israel rejected the Lord and they asked for a king. God wanted to be ruler over them, but the people trampled on that relationship that God wanted to have with them. In chapter 10, as we read, Samuel comes right out and says, Today you've rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you've said to him, set a king over us. People are like, we don't care. And in the previous chapter when Anthony preached, uh, Samuel's like, you know, a king's going gonna to take your taxes. You're going to have to give up your sons for war. It's going to take your land and all these miserable, terrible things. Like, we don't care. And I was like, and it's rejecting God, by the way. And they're like, we don't care. Set a king. They've rejected God, and they just don't care. They believe they're better off living their lives in their own hands than giving control over to the Lord. The people have put their hopes and desires on a king rather than the Lord himself. As we read, as Samuel tells Saul, And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you? Rather than the desires of the people of Israel being set on the Lord, the desires are set on a man who is doomed from the start. The Lord could have simply just said, no, you can't have a king. You're going to follow me because that's the way I want it. But God supported and sustained them even though he knew what was better than for them. And even though they didn't want God involved at all. The story kind of continues on and uh, Saul turns out to be a pretty terrible king, uh, just like most of the, the rest of the kings. Um, this guy, he was tall, handsome, wealthy. In the eyes of Israel, he was the perfect fit to be a king. There was, there was no one more suited, and the chapter reminds us of that over and over again. But what we see is this guy who is the perfect fit still failed, and it was an absolute disaster. See, Saul failed as a king, uh, but what this, what this foreshadows to and what we see in the New Testament is a king that doesn't fail. The king Saul couldn't find his donkeys, but there comes a king who will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. The king Saul will fail just like all the other nations. But Christ will proclaim, I am not of this world. King Saul lived his life looking for comfort and living for himself, yet Christ did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Kings were to serve. Saul served himself, but Christ came to serve. To the people of Israel, look to Saul as their savior, yet he shrinks and falls short of that role. Jesus is the far better savior and a far better king. (laughs) See, it was God's intent for Israel's kings to foreshadow the reign in the kingdom of Lord Jesus Christ. Time and time and time again, these kings have failed over and over and over again. All of the kings of Israel fall short of what the people put their hopes in, yet Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the complete and utter fulfillment of the king who is worthy of their praise. Any earthly king would encroach on the true king, Jesus Christ. God sends us Christ not because we even asked for it or even deserve it, because we didn't, because we rejected him time and time again. But he sends us him because that's just the way God is. He loves us and desires far more for us than we even deserve or desire for ourselves. All along, the people think they're pursuing their their goals and their hopes and their desires, but all along, somebody else has been working on a much grander scale. They're not the lion. The lion is God. 
God pursues them knowing what's better for them, even though they don't even desire it for themselves. So we have trampled on the relationship that God wants to have with us. That can't be unpunished. For that reason, that's why Christ was sent to the earth to bear the payment that we deserved and in turn became that remedy for our disobedience. Here in Israel, people rejected the king and again at Calvary they said, we have no king. And that king that we rejected died on the cross and rose from the dead, bridging the gap and restoring that relationship we broke in the very first place. What we see is when we turn our backs from God and pursue other things, God never stops pursuing us. Because the covenant between God and man stands even when it's broken time and time and time again by man. That's what we see with the people of Israel. The people of Israel searched and searched and searched for a better king. When all their options were exhausted, there stands the one true king who's beaten, battered, and scarred and rejected by them. Christ is the far better king. So that leaves us with the question, who is the king of our life? Is it Christ or is it things that we find ourselves fixated on daily? When are we telling God, I'd rather tend the donkeys than do what you have for me? What are we submitting to as ruler of our lives? What you think is king in the last analysis will fail you just like all the other kings. All things fall short compared to the glory of God. God wants you to live for something far deeper and far greater, and you have no idea. We, we tend to think what we're pursuing is what we need and what we desire, but all along God's working on a much grander scale. And he has far better plans for us. What we see is a heart set on God shatters old perceptions, invites new commitments, and requires new action. We have no idea what's going on. God has far bigger plans for our lives than we have for ourselves. Uh, C.S. Lewis writes about, um, writes about this when he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child going on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like an ignorant child going on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We're missing out on God every day and what he has for us when we say, no, I'm fine, I'd rather just make mud pies this is great, this is perfect, mud pies is what I want. And God's like, no, I have something far greater for you, far better. But we reject him time and time again when all along he's working on a much grander scale. We may think those things are what we want, but we are far too easily pleased serving those things when there is a much greater king available to us. We're called to stop living comfortably. God's calling us to something far deeper. Christ is a far better king than we are in our own lives. God has much bigger plans for us than we even have for ourselves. And what we see with these people of Israel time and time and time again, that the kings fail. And the only hope that sustains is Christ, who is the only true king. We enjoy living comfortably. But all along, God's calling us to something far deeper. Christ is the better king. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
Amen. Would you all pray with me? Dear God, uh, thank you for the ways that you constantly pursue us and you call us to live deeper than we're living. Thank you for the way that you love us. And while we reject you time and time and time again, all along you are still pursuing us. Thank you for the way that you love us and you care for us. And by sending your son as the true king, that we can come to you after we trampled on your relationship in the first place, you still came back and pursued us again. Please help us to have open eyes to see the ways that you want us to live far deeper than we're living and help us to move past living for ourselves, but to put our trust and our hopes in you. Help us to see all other rulers of this world will not provide for us and that you are the one true king and that Christ is a far better king of our lives. Please help us as we walk forth from these doors that we, that we would be changed by the message and that we would look to you daily in all of our words and our actions and that you would change the things that we pursue out of the love that you have pursued us first. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.